Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. All right, welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and with me as usual, but this time from home, Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. <laughs> Hello, Mike. I can see you uh, over the computer via video. Via video. Yeah, we're using uh, a different software to record, which is kind of cool, actually. Yes, we won't do this all the time. I like to have pizza with you on Sundays. Yeah. Yeah, we will definitely come together for pizza at some point. But Steve is lying at my feet here quietly. <laughs> That's kind of nice, actually. Yeah. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. Gagnon is one of the most tragic figures in 20th century Canadian history. She was only 10 years old when she died of exhaustion and blood poisoning in her hometown of Sainte-Philomène de Fortierville in Quebec on February 12, 1920. An autopsy revealed at least 54 wounds on her body, presumably inflicted over time by her stepmother Marie-Anne Houd and her father, Télesphore Gagnon. Both were later convicted for their roles in the little girl's death. Aurore Gagnon's story has left a lasting impact on Quebec's cultural memory, inspiring plays, films, and discussions about child abuse and children's rights in the province. This is Dark Poutine episode 282, The Child Martyr, Aurore Gagnon. Aurore Gagnon, baptized as Marie Aurore Lucien Gagnon, was the second child of Télesphore Gagnon and Marianne Caron, who wed in September of 1906. Télesphore was a prosperous farmer, blacksmith, logger, and handyman in the strongly Catholic parish of Saint-Philomène de Fortierville. 
the broader region of Quebec was predominantly home to the Algonquin and Iroquois-speaking St. Lawrence Iroquois, which included tribes like the Mohawk, who'd lived there for eons before the Europeans arrived. Fortierville sits southwest of Quebec City and was named for one of the first French families named Fortier, who settled there in the middle of the 19th century. The church was built in 1881 and named for Saint Philomene by the first parish priest, Father Pierre-Léon Lahaye. Saint Philomene is believed to be a Grecian king's daughter who was taken to Rome as a hostage. Her beauty and Christian virtues caught Emperor Diocletian's attention. He tried to woo her with promises of luxury and marriage. Firm in her faith, she rejected him, leading to her torture and eventually martyrdom. Her remains were placed in the Roman catacombs and her sanctity spread across Europe with miracles attributed to her. Research suggests she was martyred at around 12 or 13 years old. In Saint Philomene, she is revered as the parish's patron, with many visiting her statue in the church. A distinguishing feature of this church in the quaint town is its possession of a relic of Saint Philomena. The initial priest of the church held a deep veneration for the saint leading to the church's dedication to her. The treasured relic of St. Philomena in the church is a first-class piece, a fragment of bone, gifted by Bishop Vitagliano of Magnano, Italy, on August 11, 1884, coinciding with the commencement of the church's construction. Notably, Magnano del Cardinale is the home of the shrine of St. Philomena, so sort of a sister church to that shrine in Italy. Yeah, and the, the tragic irony here is that St. Philomena was actually the patron saint of children and youth. Uh, she was awarded this status because she was martyred when she was young and su supposedly um, helped young people when she was alive. So, you know, this horrifying story of child abuse and murder just outside of the church gates, like named after her is sort of sad and ironic. Aurore Gagnon's father owned property near the village's east entrance. At the time, he was well-liked and known for his generosity and unselfish assistance to needy people, whether monetarily or through lending a hand around their homes. Caron and Talisfor's first child, Marie-Jean, was born on August 1, 1907, and she was followed by Aurore on May 31, 1909, Lucina in 1912, then George in 1913, and Joseph in 1915. All reports indicate that up to this point, family life in the Gagnon home was loving, happy, and peaceful. Marie-Anne Caron became sick after Joseph's birth, and the diagnosis, often the death sentence in that era, was tuberculosis, a.k.a. the white plague or consumption. In the 1910s, the outlook for the individuals diagnosed with tuberculosis, TB, was notably bleak compared to today. Without the benefits of effective antibiotics, which wouldn't be introduced until the mid-20th century, many patients had to rely solely on supportive care. TB was the leading cause of death during this era, and while sanatoriums emerged as primary treatment centers offering patients rest, nutrition, and fresh air, their effectiveness was inconsistent. Tuberculosis is a notorious affliction, primarily of the lungs, brought on by the Bacillus mysobacterium tuberculosis. The manifestation of the disease's terminal stages varies, but at the time was characterized by several grave developments. Sufferers frequently succumb to respiratory distress. 
In its cruel advance, the malady ravaged the lung tissues, impairing the lungs' capacity to function effectively and leading to a condition wherein the blood's equilibrium is distributed by an excess of carbon dioxide. Systemically, the disease rendered its victims noticeably emaciated with pronounced weight loss and overwhelming fatigue. This weakening state predisposes the afflicted to further ailments and complications. In more severe pulmonary cases, individuals were observed expectorating blood, coughing it up, a condition called hemotysis. This can be particularly perilous, potentially leading to choking or profuse blood loss. While consumption was most commonly known for its assault on the lungs, it had a sinister tendency to spread its influence to other bodily regions, including the spine, kidneys, or even the brain. When it invades the brain, it might result in a grave condition known as tuberculosis meningitis. Those weakened by consumption were more vulnerable to other illnesses. These ancillary infections compound the body's frailty and can bring about additional complications. Other alarming consequences like a collapsed lung, or what the medical community calls pneumothorax, might arise, especially when the disease has spread beyond the lungs. It is important to recognize that early detection and timely intervention can forestall many of these dire outcomes. Socioeconomic factors also played a crucial role. Overcrowded living conditions, particularly in urban settings, accelerated the disease's spread and those in impoverished situations facing malnutrition and limited access to care often suffered a worse prognosis. The 1918 influenza pandemic exacerbated the situation. Those with TB who contracted the flu faced a dramatically heightened mortality risk despite the increased public awareness about TB and efforts to detect and control its spread. Many individuals were diagnosed at advanced stages, making recovery even more challenging. Yeah, and TB has actually been on the rise in Canada since COVID-19. Um, because if you think about it, right, like so much of the health system was redirected to, to fighting COVID-19 that, um, you know, what they were doing before in terms of tracing and prevention and early diagnosis was sort of swept aside by this pandemic. And, uh, you know, I think part of the nation's shame in all of this is it's, it's dis- uh, TB is disproportionately impacting Indigenous people, especially amongst the Inuit who have uh, 300 times higher TB infections than the general population. Oh, wow. That's crazy. 300 times. 300 times. Wow. Marie-Anne Caron was sent to a sanatorium in Beauport, leaving Talisfor with his huge property and five youngsters to care for. He chose his business, shipping the children to Leclercville to live with their maternal grandparents. Seeing he needed help around his farm, Marie-Anne Hood, the widow of Taylor's Force cousin Napoleon and mother of two, Gerard and Georges-Henri, from Saint-Sophie-de-Lavrard, moved in to lend a hand. Tragedy struck the Gagnon family in quick succession after her arrival. In early 1917, five-year-old Lucina died after choking on a potato while living with her siblings at her maternal grandparents during her mother's illness. Rumors were already swirling in the town, even though Marie-Anne Caron was still alive, whispers circulated about Talisfor's alleged newfound romantic involvement with Marie-Anne Hood. When the local priest caught wind of the chatter, he challenged Talisfor, accusing him of being unfaithful. Talisfor firmly denied any romantic entanglement with Marie-Anne Hood, insisting their relationship was purely platonic and nothing more than a business arrangement. 
Heeding the priest's admonishments, Talisvor brought the children back to the farm in November 1917 and tragedy struck again. The youngest Ganyong, Joseph, was found deceased in his bed in their home, with an inquiry deeming it a natural death from apparent suffocation, what was commonly called crib death. With everything we know now, I really question if this death was natural. Yeah, and I think people also, after learning of Aurora's fate, began to feel the same way, but nobody was ever charged for Joseph's death. Aurora's mother, Marie-Anne Caron, succumbed to tuberculosis at the Beauport Asylum on January 23, 1918. A week later, on February 1, 1918, Talisfor quietly married Marianne Hood so she could continue to support him and his home while he tended to his businesses. The Gagnon children were again shipped off to Leclercville. Marianne Hood became pregnant soon after and gave birth in early 1919 before Talisfor's children returned home. There was much friction between nine-year-old Aurora and her new stepmother, Marianne. They did not seem to like each other one iota. Aurora was upset that her mother's things had either been packed away or co-opted by Marie-Anne Hood. Worse yet, Hood now not only shared Talisfor's bed, but she also had the bulk of his affection and was a stern disciplinarian who ruled what was now her house with an iron fist. To top it all off, Marie-Anne Hood was pregnant again, this time with twins. If the children made the slightest mistake doing a chore, spilled something, refused to help, or talked back in any way, there were severe physical punishments, often far worse than the accused infraction would suggest. Emelian Hamill, a nephew of Talisfor's, worked for his uncle for about eight or nine days at the end of March in 1919. During his brief stay, he witnessed Talisfor Gagnon punish Aurora once with a switch, he also observed Marie-Anne Hood beating her with a small switch, striking her about five or six times on the legs over her dress. The reason for the punishment was Aurora's failure to wash the dishes. Hamel mentioned that the beatings he saw weren't excessive. He left the Gagnon household because his services were no longer needed. He didn't feel the need to talk to anyone about what he'd seen. There were others, though, who raised the alarm. Neighbors quickly became aware of the problems at the farm soon after the Gagnon children moved back in with Talisfor and Hood. Overhearing screaming and crying children coming from the Gagnon family home was so disturbing to the other villagers that they took their concerns to the parish priest and the nearby justice of the peace, Aureus Mailhot. They all claimed that Aurora was the main target of discipline within the house. People claimed to have seen her with bruises, scrapes, burns, and cuts. In July 1919, Mailhot wanted to meet with Talisfor Gagnon, Marianne Hood, and their daughter, Aurora, to put these things to rest. The parents claimed that they disciplined Aurora frequently due to her, quote, vicious character and attributed her injuries to other children and her own clumsiness. However, when Mailhot privately questioned Aurora, she attributed her injuries to the Gagnon boys and a Bedard boy who, she said, threw rocks at her and stabbed her with a stick. Despite her own account, Mailhot remained suspicious of the parents. However, he felt he had no real evidence to go any further. There were witnesses to Marianne Hood's cruelty, but all this would come out too late to save poor Aurora. As a result of her abuse and malnourishment, Aurora Gagnon was not in the best health, and her wounds stubbornly refused to heal. On September 16, 1919, she was admitted to the hospital in Quebec City to treat an ulcerated foot due to a burn. Marianne Hood claimed Aurora had accidentally burned her foot herself, but in reality, Hood had burned it with a red-hot fire poker during a violent episode. 
Vitaline Leboeuf, a neighbor, had a conversation with Talisfort Gagnon in late 1919. Talisfort expressed his frustrations with Aurore, describing her as a stubborn child. He mentioned that he had disciplined her, and Vitaline had responded with concern, suggesting that such beatings could be harmful. Talisfort indicated that Aurore had challenged him, but he was confident in his authority over her. Vitaline advised Talisfort to send Aurore to Quebec City to be cared for by nuns, believing they could better handle her. Exilda Auger, a friend of Marie-Anne Hood's for four years, visited the Gagnon house intermittently. Exilda witnessed a specific incident when she visited Hood's home and saw Aurore Gagnon crying while lying on a dirty pallet on the floor. Marie-Anne Hood showed her an axe handle, indicating that she'd punished Aurore with it. Exilda was shocked by the grim state of Aurore's living conditions and her abuse and told Marie-Anne Hood that Aurore looked pitiful and suggested a doctor should be consulted. However, Hood dismissed the idea. In January 1920, Marianne told Exilda that she wished Aurora would die without anyone finding out. On February 9, 1920, Agitor Gagnon, a 39-year-old farmer who lived nearby, informed Justice of the Peace, Mailhote, about the alleged mistreatment of Aurora. He mentioned seeing Aurora with head injuries around January 18th, which Marianne Hood explained as frostbite from Aurora, the stupid girl, walking barefoot in the snow. On February 11th, Mailhote discussed the matter with his parish priest, who said he'd have Father Massey go check on the girl in the next few days. But little did he know it was too late. I mean, this really stood out to me, Mike, and it, it might, uh, with our listeners, that a justice of the peace who's pointed by the Minister of Justice to receive criminal information and issue warrants, is going to the Catholic Church to have a priest go check in a few days, right? Completely outrageous. But And it's also before the Quiet Revolution in Quebec in the 1960s, right? Um, Quebec could almost be considered a theocracy back in this time. You know, the, the church really did rule the province. Uh, even a few examples, there was no provincial responsibility for education. The Catholic Church had that abolished because they wanted to be in charge of all education. 3% of women in Quebec were nuns. Uh, and in fact, up until 2019, a crucifix was still hanging over the Quebec City legislature. So, so when you look at and question why people were doing this, you have to think of the context of the time that the Catholic Church really ruled the province back then. Well, there are still those problems there in Quebec, I think, to a degree. I mean, you see the arguments over head covering and all that kind of thing. Uh, other religions tend to have less favor in that province. Well, yeah, that's that's the interesting part. The, secu the crucifix in the Quebec City Legislature was removed upon the adoption of the secularism bill that was primarily about the head coverings, but people pointed out, hey, if, if you're going to be secular, you can't have a crucifix in the legislature. <laughs> Goes both ways, right? I guess they didn't think that uh, making a rule for other people would actually apply to them too. Oh, well. On February 12th, Marie-Anne Hood called Dr. Andronic Lafond to look in on Aurore. Dr. Lafond served as the physician for the parish of St. Philomene. Upon his arrival, Aurora was unconscious and in a critical state. She was downstairs in the house, laying on a mattress, no longer assigned to her straw-covered mattress in the attic. 
perhaps the only small mercy afforded her by her abusers in her final hours. Marie Anne was the only adult present as Talisfor was off in the woods. Dr. LaFond had been practicing medicine since 1910 and he'd never seen a youngster in such a sorry state. He was horrified by the condition in which he saw poor Aurore. He believed nothing could be done to save her and told Marie Anne someone should call for Father Massey to administer last rites. Exilda Alger, who was also present, was the one who called for the priest and told him to come quickly. Father Massey in turn urgently called the Justice of the Peace, informing him that Aurore Gagnon was on the brink of death and requested a ride to the Gagnon residence. Upon arrival, they were met with a harrowing sight. The girl, covered up to her neck, displayed grievous wounds all over her body, which Malehote said resembled a crucifixion. She was gaunt and pale, her face bruised and blackened. Overwhelmed by the scene, Malehote and Father Massey were moved to tears. The priest quickly administered the last rites. When asked to turn the child over, Marie Anne said she couldn't do it, prompting Malehote to do so. This revealed even more extensive injuries. Malehote, sensing the girl's imminent demise, suggested someone should fetch Talisfor. He then called for three neighbors, Agitor Gagnon, Alp Chandonnet, and Arcadius Lemay, to witness the girl's condition. Chandonnet asked Marie-Anne about the doctor's absence, to which she replied that her husband, Talisfor, didn't want medical intervention. She also claimed the girl's sores appeared that morning and mentioned Joseph's death, she claimed, was from a similar ailment. Joseph's death was nothing like what Aurore had endured, as he'd died of suspected crib death. Chandonnet rushed out to retrieve Talisfor from the woods. Aurore died at around 7 o'clock that evening. After her passing, Arcadius LeMay was the one who prepared and laid out her body. During this process, he observed multiple sores on her back, with seven or eight being particularly noticeable. He also remarked on the poor condition of her right hand, to which Marie-Anne Hood responded that it had begun swelling that morning. On hearing of Aurore's death, Exilda Auger said, quote, People will talk, and rightly so. The rumors began to swirl, around the small village. More after a quick break. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts so far on this episode? I like the title of this episode, Child Martyr. Um, you know, for me, she was kind of a martyr in the name of secularism. Um you know, as we know, churches of all denominations over the history of Canada really have had an appalling uh, track record of uh, child protection. And in fact, often were perpetrators, not not in this case, but I don't think they helped. And, you know, I just keep going back to the symbolism of, of the church that they, they live near, St. Philomena, who is a protector of children. And, you know... <laughs> it's sort of the symbolic nature of a of of a saint versus the lived reality of you know not just praying but 
removing children from harmful situations, which wasn't done, right? It just seems like everyone kind of just shuffled it around and nobody really took responsibility to protect this little girl. Yeah, sometimes it takes uh, a tragedy to get people to pay attention. And I guess that's why, that's why Aurora was, is considered a martyr. Yeah, and, and the, the rest of this episode is actually really hard to listen to, but the facts need to be told, the realities, right? Typically in the era that we're speaking about in this episode, when a person's death was suspicious, especially that of a child, the initial step in the legal procedure was a coroner's inquest. Today, one might have to wait months to get to that step, but it happened right away in those days. In this case, it was the very next day with Dr. G. William Jolliker acting as coroner. Exilda Auger testified, telling the inquest. Exilda Auger testified, telling the inquest what she'd seen at the Gagnon home. After an earlier visit, she was suspicious that Aurora was being severely mistreated. Exilda said, in part, quote, "Last February 10th, I went back to the Gagnons, and without asking for permission, I went upstairs to see the deceased. I found her in a corner in the attic, on a pallet with only a small gray blanket and a pillow." Beside her, on a small piece of furniture, was a plate holding two potatoes and a knife. When she saw me come in, the deceased leaned on her elbow and could barely support herself. She said her knees hurt greatly, but did not complain about anyone as usual. I did not question her either. When I came downstairs, I told her stepmother that the deceased was very ill and that it would be best to have her treated. She answered, The child is my husband's. If he wants to have her treated, let him do so. If he brings me medicine... I will administer it to her. I didn't go back until yesterday, at the request of Madame Gagnon, who telephoned me to tell me the deceased was worse. I went there and found the deceased on a bed in a room downstairs. She was unconscious. Madame Gagnon, Marie-Anne Houd, had telephoned the doctor, and I myself called the parish priest. Madame Gagnon told me that she had trouble carrying the child downstairs, and that she told her husband not to go to the woods because she found the deceased worse. Nevertheless, he went without seeing Aurore, who was still upstairs at the time. Marie-Jean Gagnon, Aurore's 12-year-old sister, also testified regarding Aurore's condition leading up to her death. She stated that Aurore began developing blisters on her body and limbs about three weeks prior, eventually bursting open and releasing pus. Aurore's health deteriorated significantly in the past five days, she said. Marie-Jean claimed that she was unaware of any physical abuse inflicted on Aurora by her parents. On the day before Aurora's death, she had a breakfast of potatoes, meat, bread, and syrup. After being washed by Marie-Anne, Aurora went to bed and showed signs of delirium around 11 a.m. Throughout the morning, Marie-Jean provided Aurora with hot water, which she repeatedly requested after Marie-Anne had initially given her some. Marie-Anne called Dr. Lafon, who arrived in the afternoon, but by then, Aurora was unconscious. Aurora's father, Talisfor, also spoke. He minimized Aurora's condition. He said that Aurora developed sores he called bobos, or boo-boos, I guess, on her arms, legs, and body about three weeks before her death. Talisfor did not personally inspect these wounds, he said, and his wife, Marie-Anne, was Aurora's primary caregiver during this period. He admitted to punishing Aurora with a lash and sometimes with a piece of wood when she misbehaved or when his wife reported her misbehavior. 
He claimed he had not seen his wife physically abusing Aurora. So he's trying to mitigate his responsibility by saying, I only whipped her and hit her with a piece of wood. Yeah. He was abusing her just as much as she was. Yeah. Taylor's force said Aurora appeared normal in the morning of the day she died. After learning of Aurora's grave condition, he rushed home, finding her unconscious. He said she passed away that evening without regaining consciousness. Dr. Albert Marois had performed the autopsy of Aurore Gagnon. He testified that the ten-and-a-half-year-old girl's body displayed numerous external wounds, 54 in all, including bruises, burns, and infections. Some injuries seemed to have been caused by blunt force or lashing, while others were in various stages of healing. Her scalp was oozing blood and pus from huge lacerations. Internally, her brain, heart, and lungs appeared normal, but her liver was enlarged and the stomach contained a brownish liquid. The skin on the lower limbs, especially the left, showed extensive detachment and infection. Dr. Marois concluded that the cause of death was general poisoning, possibly from septicemia. The autopsy indicated that Aurora was malnourished, and did not receive appropriate care for her condition, and her injuries were inflicted directly by someone else, not from infectious diseases. The six jurors concluded that the cause of death was poisoning, potentially from septicemia, or another cause. Toxicology tests showed that there were no foreign poisons inside her body. I mean, that just paints such a horrible picture of what was done to her. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I actually know somebody who recently died from septicemia. Oh, gosh. You can actually get it from even a superficial wound. It's really important that you don't get infected. Get get an infection like that because once septicemia grabs you, it's actually really hard to get rid of. Yeah. Police arrested Taylor's four and Marianne on February 14th and they were held in the local jail. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day, mofos. Yeah. Yeah, they deserve to be right there. On February 17, 1920, the couple appeared before Justice P.A. Choquette in the sessions of the Peace Court. The prosecution accused the Gagnons of committing homicide in the child's death. However, the couple pleaded innocent, firmly asserting their innocence and preparing a defense to demonstrate that the girl died of natural causes. The court decided to keep them both in custody. The preliminary investigation was scheduled for Tuesday, February 24, and afterward, it was determined both should be tried separately for Aurora's murder. Marianne Hood was the first tried, and proceedings began on April 13th. The Crown started by painting a picture of the state of Aurora's body at the time of her death, calling Dr. Marois to read his disturbing autopsy findings into evidence. The prosecution witnesses that followed painted a horrific picture of Aurora's treatment. These included relatives, neighbors, and friends of the Gagnon family. Many had seen Aurora's physical condition and poor treatment at the hands of her father and stepmother. Some had even witnessed the beatings most often administered by Marie-Anne. Countering Marie-Anne and Telesfort's claims, Mademoiselle Saint-Ange, who taught Aurora at school, provided a contrasting image of Aurora, describing her as a diligent student, always well-behaved, obedient, and showcasing a level of intelligence that stood out. Marguerite Leboeuf, Marie-Anne Hood's 15-year-old niece, visited in late August 1919 and had stayed a week, she testified that during this visit, she observed several disturbing incidents where Marie-Anne had subjected Aurora to severe physical abuse. Aurora was beaten with various objects such as pieces of wood and a switch, causing her to cry out in pain. In a particularly harrowing incident, 
Marie Anne heated a curling iron over a lamp and used it to singe Aurore's hair, burning it severely. Marguerite noticed the deplorable living conditions Aurore endured, noting her sleeping arrangement in the attic on a bare bed with only a pillow. She was warned not to say anything about Aurore's treatment as she left for home. Aurore's older sister, Marie-Jean Gagnon, gave the most compelling testimony in Marie-Anne's trial. Marie-Jean was afraid of reprisals and had told the earlier coroner's inquest what her parents had said she should say. With her abusers in jail, she decided that she wouldn't stay quiet any longer. She said she watched as Marianne Hood brutalized Aurora for months, often beating the little girl, the object of her resentment, with various objects including pieces of wood, barrel staves, and switches. She watched helpless and afraid for her own life while Aurora was repeatedly burned with a heated poker. To do this, Marianne would tie Aurora to a table and burn her all over her body, especially on her legs, feet, and thighs. The burning was so intense that the house would fill with the smell of burnt skin. Marie-Jean herself was also a victim of abuse, having been beaten by her stepmother with objects like the same poker and pieces of wood. She'd also seen Marianne tearing clumps of hair from Aurora's head. You can understand why her sister was quiet at the beginning, why she wasn't telling this story. She was she's living in fear. Right, And I think it looks like only when she realized that these people were going to be taken away so they couldn't harm her, did she decide she can speak out. Aurora was denied basic necessities. For instance, she was not given a chamber pot, leading her to relieve herself elsewhere in the house. As a punishment for this, she was burned. Additionally, she slept on the floor without blankets and was often deprived of food, sometimes going days without meals. When she did receive food, it was sometimes inedible. Marie-Anne Hood demanded silence about what was happening in their house and had threatened the other children with even more severe beatings if they spoke about it. Due to the illness of Gerard Gagnon, Aurore's brother, the court proceedings had to be temporarily moved to the Dussault Hospital. Gerard, suffering from influenza, testified from his sickbed, backing up Marie-Jean's claims. His account was as harrowing as his sister's. He spoke of witnessing his mother's cruelty toward Aurora. He recalled a particularly disturbing incident where Aurora was forced to consume bread spread with lye and excrement on at least one occasion. The court was presented with a letter penned by the accused herself, written from her prison cell in Quebec City. The letter was addressed to her in-laws. In it, she expressed her concern about her family's well-being and provided specific instructions on their care. This letter offered a glimpse into Marie Anne's state of mind and her continued attempts to exert control even from behind bars. As she listened to the testimony against her, Marie Anne Hood intermittently sobbed. On April 16, 1920, an article by La Presse first referred to poor Aurore Gagnon as a martyr. The community in Fortierville showed no sympathy for Marie Anne Hood. They believed she should be punished for her crimes. Marie-Anne Hood's defense attorney stated that while he didn't necessarily accept the presented facts as true, if they were, then his client must be insane to have committed such acts. He requested the court to appoint a medical committee to assess the accused's mental state. Initially, the defense had planned to argue that Aurora's death was due to a spinal cord ailment and not mistreatment, 
However, they had to reconsider this stance after hearing the testimonies of the last witnesses, including Justice of the Peace Malhot and Arcadius LeMay and Adjutor Gagnon. These witnesses described the dire state in which they found Aurora on the day of her death. The following morning, an inquiry into Marie Anne's mental state began. Talisfor testified. He mentioned changes in his wife's behavior, especially during her pregnancies. He also stated that his wife treated all children equally and showed no particular hatred toward Aurora. Madame de Mer from Trois-Rivières played an instrumental role in the trial by offering insights into Marie-Anne Hood's family background. Her testimony aimed to contextualize the defense's assertion of a hereditary mental instability in Marie-Anne's family. Delving into the family's past, Demers highlighted a series of erratic and violent behaviors suggesting a possible genetic or familial trend of mental issues. Beyond the historical accounts, she shared first-hand observations from her interactions with the family, underscoring the abnormal behaviors she personally witnessed. Her position as someone familiar with the family added credibility to her statements. By presenting this family history, Demers provided a backdrop that could potentially explain Marie-Anne's actions. Marie-Anne's father described his background as a laborer working in logging camps and on log drives. He said that he had 11 children, with only four still alive. When asked about his daughter Marie-Anne's health, he recalled that she suffered from severe headaches starting at the age of 12. During one of these episodes, she lost consciousness twice. A doctor diagnosed her with what her father believed was called meningitis or lethargy. However, he wasn't present during her illness as he was away working. Marie-Anne's father also mentioned that Marie-Anne continued to experience these headaches even after her marriage to Napoleon Gagnon, her first husband. She would sometimes be bedridden for one or two days due to the severity of the headaches. Marie-Anne lived with her father for a year after Napoleon had died helping with the housework while he and others worked in logging camps. During his testimony, Willie Hood discussed his sister Marianne Hood's behavior, particularly during her pregnancies. He noted that she would become more irritable and aggressive when pregnant, often beating her children harder and more frequently than when she wasn't expecting. He emphasized that while she did discipline her children when not pregnant, the severity and frequency increased during her pregnancies. Willie recalled that Marianne had six living children from her first marriage to Napoleon Gagnon, and she had one miscarriage. He lived with her for a year after her marriage and observed her behavior firsthand. During cross-examination, Willie confirmed that Marianne would discipline her children even when she wasn't pregnant, but the intensity was notably higher during her pregnancies. He reiterated that he had observed her behavior both as a child and as an adult. Dr. Alsay Tetro from Montreal testified that Marie-Anne exhibited signs of a disturbed mental state. He linked this to a claimed bout of meningitis in her youth and the toll of consecutive pregnancies. He further noted that her behavior towards Aurora was irrational and questioned her full responsibility for her actions, suggesting a mental institution would suit her. Dr. Albert Prevost observed that Marie-Anne showed lifelong indications of mental disorders. Her experiences during pregnancy included hallucinations, and she had varied sensory perceptions. She had a history of severe abuse towards her children, though she professed to care for them. Physical anomalies in her face and body were also highlighted. 
Dr. Prevost believed she had a form of insanity tied to a mental deficiency compounded by disorders related to her reproductive system. He asserted that her symptoms were genuine and beyond her ability to fabricate. Called by the Crown as a rebuttal witness, Dr. Michelle Delphi's Brochu of Quebec City, with more than four decades in medical practice, was the superintendent of Beauport Asylum, an institution for the mentally ill. During his testimony, Dr. Brochu was asked about the mental state and intentions of Marie-Anne Hood. He opined that certain actions of Marie-Anne, such as the severe mistreatment of Aurore and efforts to hide the evidence, indicated calculated intent, suggesting she was aware of her actions and their consequences. He highlighted that the brutalities inflicted would suggest a mental aberration, prompting a deeper look into her past and current mental state. Dr. Brochu was also questioned about signs of mental debility and moral insanity in Marianne. He stated that such conditions would manifest throughout an individual's life, especially during childhood and adolescence. He pointed out that no evidence was presented in court to suggest Marianne exhibited signs of these conditions. He mentioned the letter written by Marianne, which he believed to show her intelligence and ability to manipulate situations to her advantage. He also noted that Marianne had been trusted by her community to care for homes when others were ill, which contradicts the characteristics of moral insanity. He stated there was no clear evidence of inherent mental illness or degeneracy in Marianne's past. That's sort of clear to me. She just strikes me as being a cruel, cruel human being. Yeah. Marianne was found guilty of Aurore's murder and sentenced to hang. She gave birth to twins... Jean d'Arc and Roche-Jean in the Quebec City prison on July 8, 1920. Her sentence was then later commuted to life in prison. Talisfor's trial started on April 23rd and only took six days. Due to his lesser involvement in Aurora's death, he was convicted of the lesser charge of manslaughter. He was, however, also sentenced to life behind bars. In 1921, the twins were sent to state care on the same day as Marianne Hood's transfer to Kingston Penitentiary. Days later, a play titled Aurore, the Child Martyr premiered in Montreal, recounting the Fortierville events. It saw immense popularity with thousands of performances until the 1950s. By 1923, efforts to release Marianne Hood began. Talisfor was released in 1925 either due to health concerns or good behavior. So he was only in there for four years. And don't you find it weird that she named her new daughter Joan of Arc when she was burning her stepdaughter? The aforementioned play was expanded in 1927, and a novel about the event was published between 1927 and 31. In the 1930s, Marie-Anne Hood battled health issues, including breast cancer, which later spread to her lungs. Despite her deteriorating health due to cancer, her release was only granted in 1935, shortly before she died in 1936. Talisfor remarried in 1938. The tragic tale continued to inspire literature and film throughout the mid-20th century. The 1950s saw the release of a film based on the earlier play which faced legal battles before its premiere. Other adaptations, novels, and interpretations emerged, highlighting the story's lasting impact. Talisfor Gagnon passed away in 1961. As the decades proceeded, more novels, plays, films, and dramatizations, like the 1994 TV dramatization, kept the story alive. 
In 2004, an interpretation center opened in Fortierville, and a year later, a new film adaptation generated renewed interest in the Gagnon case. As I researched this case, I was reminded of a story from my first book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, where I told the tragic tale of the brutal torture and murder of teenager Sylvia Likens at the hands of her caregiver, Gertrude Banaszewski. There were some differences, of course, but both girls endured severe physical, emotional, and psychological torment, which eventually killed them both. Sylvia was confined, starved, beaten, and even had words carved onto her skin, while Aurora was frequently beaten, burned, and deprived of basic necessities. Disturbingly, in both cases, members of their respective communities were aware of the abuse but failed to act. Sylvia's neighbors and classmates noticed her deteriorating condition but remained silent, while some in Aurora's community and family either turned a blind eye or were too fearful to intervene. Following their tragic deaths, justice was sought. In the U.S., Gertrude Banaszewski was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life, with several of her children and other participants also facing convictions. In Quebec, as we know, Marianne Hood was sentenced to life in prison for her crimes, while Talis Four Gagnon was convicted but later released. The legacies of both Sylvia and Aurore live on, serving as harrowing reminders of the importance of community intervention. Sylvia's story is often cited as one of the most severe child abuse cases in U.S. history, inspiring numerous books, documentaries, and films. And similarly, as we've already said, Aurora's tale has become a poignant part of Quebec's cultural memory retold through various mediums. Both stories underscore the dire need for effective child protection systems and the consequences of societal inaction. Aurora's story endures. As society's understanding and sensitivity toward topics like child abuse, mental health, and societal responsibility have evolved, so has the way Aurora's story is interpreted and retold. Each retelling brings with it a new lens through which the events are examined, making the story continually relevant. Aurora's sad tale continues to serve as a poignant reminder of marginalized people's vulnerabilities, the community's responsibilities, and the ever-present need for compassion and intervention in the face of injustice. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 282, Child Martyr, Aurora Gagnon. Yeah, this one frustrated me. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The more I read about it, the more angry I got. I couldn't help but compare it to the case of Sylvia Likens that I talked about in my book. Right. It, the, the two cases are just so, so close together. I mean, Sylvia went through hell as well, but um, Gertrude Benazewski was just a caregiver. She wasn't a stepmother. She was just a caregiver to Sylvia. So I don't know. It, it's like, in a way, if a parent does it, it makes it worse somehow. I don't know. In my mind, like there are degrees ugly, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all really ugly, but, um, can I say thank you for not doing too many stories like this of children? Because I find them particularly hard. Yeah. Well, that this is why I don't do them. I felt that this one is, was important. Historically. Yeah. Historically important. It is one of those stories from Quebec that is told a lot there. And I felt I would be remiss if I were to leave this one out of the dark poutine sort of lexicon, I guess. The dark poutine canon. The canon of dark poutine.
That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. So it is time for voicemails. And uh, let's see. First up, we have this one. I wonder if you're going to be able to hear it. I'm curious. Hi, Mike and Matthew. Uh, my name is Liz. Uh, I actually grew up in Penetanguishene, right down the hill from the Waypoint Mental Health Center. So I've heard you guys talk about us a lot on the show. Um, anyways, I was calling to um, recommend or suggest or ask you about a case, um, several cases. As you know, right now, uh, Indigenous communities are rallying for, to get uh, the RCMP in Manitoba, Sicily, Winnipeg, to search the Brady and Prairie landfills, um, and they refused to do so, citing likely bullshit reasons, um, when they have money to search for billionaires in the sub, and now they have set a major crimes investigation on the graffiti where people wrote, search the landfill, um, and other truthful slogans um, on cement. So they... Uh, now that their feelings are hurt, they want to spend money on that, but they refuse to search for missing and likely murdered Indigenous women that are believed to be in those landfills. Um, I was wondering if you could tell their stories, um, maybe increase awareness. Um, I know that the stories have been going around um, more prevalently lately, but um, definitely more people need to be thinking and talking about this and asking for justice and getting them to search the landfills. Uh, anyways, I love you guys' show. Um, I've listened to it over twice now. Um, uh, yeah, I appreciate your points of view. And uh, Matthew's insights, love him as a co-host. Anyways, you guys can go shin your hat. But she not that sick. Uh, have a great day. Bye. Wow, so uh, a little bit of French for us for pooping in our toques anyway any comments (laughs) this is really hard right because um people want to find their loved ones okay this is really hard because people want to find their loved ones it's a shitload of money um but at the same time i think canada has a little bit of reckoning to do uh, for missing and, and and murdered indigenous women. Um, it's hard. It's really hard. Uh, I don't know what to say. Uh, like it's, I want them, I want them, it's complicated. I want them found. Um, but at the same time, you know, I mean, like generally I don't trust governments. <laughs> Are you still thinking? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, like like we both said, I think it's a little more complicated. Uh, I, I, I do think maybe the reasons that are being given aren't the real reasons. Uh, I, I think they're afraid to open a can of worms is what I believe is really the, the actual Which, reason. Oh, you think that's what's going on? Yeah, well, they're afraid to open this can of worms where... Uh, okay, so we search, we spend millions of dollars to search for two human beings in an area. 
millions of dollars. I don't know how much it's actually going to cost, but they're saying millions of dollars. So we spend millions of dollars to search for those two human beings. What happens if there's new human beings every week that we need to search for in this way? Then all of a sudden, every tax dollar that we have may be going toward searching for bodies, which is insane. It's a very fine line, I think. And I don't think the government is walking it very well. They're not at all. And um, we wouldn't be in this situation if we'd cared earlier, to put it bluntly. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to our next voicemail. Let's see. Hey, Mike and Matthew. Amy here. Just uh, on the highway, driving, listening to the uh, Repeat Offender podcast. Um, and actually was driving past Hondo. Uh, just as you guys were announcing the uh, donut money donors for the week. Um, thought that was actually hilarious, given the size of the community and the what are the chances. Anyways, I'm on my way to an equally small part of the world, Cadot Lake. You can Google that and see if Matthew can guess what I do for a living. Um, I have called in before and given you guys uh, a couple stories uh, relating to... Um, my career anyways um yeah just uh really enjoy the show and this episode really got me fired up obviously with our severely messed up criminal justice system and things that uh, go on in it with um giving our prisoners a lot of free will and and luxuries that i don't know most people shouldn't be given um in a lot of cases. Um, uh, anyways, go take a big poop in your toque and uh, yeah, have a great week. So Scott Lake is uh, west of Calgary along the Trans-Canada. So uh, yeah, I'm not sure what you would do in Scott Lake. It looks very tiny. <laughs> I think I think she's a chief troublemaker. Chief troublemaker. <laughs> yeah. She encourages creative dis disruption. There you go. Encourage creative <laughs> disruption in Scott Lake. Well, someone's yeah. going to do it. <laughs> I think I was that in Bridgewater for quite some time. <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to our third voicemail. Uh, here we go. Hey, it's Kara from Muskoka. You just said something about Steven Seagal being a dink and it reminded me of story, I used to date a guy, he'd been a production assistant for a long time, and you know, once in a while he'd talk about certain problematic celebrities. And I remember him saying, every time Steven Seagal comes to Toronto, he would have the PAs rent him some kind of luxury vehicle, like a Lambo or something, and then he would go burning around town, and he'd smoke a cigar, and then he would want to put his cigar out on the leather seat of the vehicle. I don't know why somebody would do something like that, but apparently this is what, you know, this is what I heard. This is what he would do, go burning around town in his Ferrari, Lamborghini, whatever they would rent for him, put out his cigars in the seat. Nice. Go take a shit in your hat. Okay. So if you, if you needed more, uh, I don't know, evidence, I guess it's hearsay evidence that Steven Seagal put uh, <laughs> cigars out on leather seats inside luxury cars... Uh, but, you know, I know he's a dink from personal <laughs> personal <laughs> uh, experience. But anyway, yeah, interesting cat, that guy. 
And he did similar things. He had Russian bodyguards with him. They were uh, ex-Special Forces guys, and one of them had a scar from the top of his head around his ear all the way down to near his jugular vein. It was Whatever the, happened to Steven Seagal? Well, he lives in Russia now. He's a friend of Putin's. No, really? no joke. He is uh, somebody who Putin loves. Fuck you, Seagal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go shit in your stupid Aikido doing hat. <laughs> anyway, that's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. Alrighty, let's take a look at Patreon. Patreon, it's time for Patreon. Matthew, are you ready? I am ready. Okay. So first up, we have Joffrey Roberge, and I don't know where Joffrey's from, Matthew. Joffrey Roberge? Yes. He is from New Brunswick. New Brunswick, okay. That would make sense with a last name like Roberge, perhaps. Yep. Uh, as Maybe. it is our only truly bilingual province. Uh, what does Joffrey do there? And don't tell me he's like a prince because uh, that that Joffrey was not a nice guy. What prince are you talking about? Oh, I'm talking about Game of Thrones. People who watched it will probably know what I'm talking about, but you don't. I've never watched Game of Thorns. Game of Thorns? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so what does Joffrey... I think, I, th I think Joffrey is a space junk removal specialist. Space junk removal specialist. So yeah. does he have to go to space to do it? Or does he remove yeah, with junk he, that he falls from space? Gets up there with a giant magnet mm -hmm. and cleans it up before it hits uh, New Brunswick. Wow. Well, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your service, Joffrey. Yeah, exactly. Next, we have Marina Bedard. And Marina is from, from Peterborough, Ontario. Peterborough. Peterborough. So you're familiar with Peterborough, I think. Peterborough. Yeah. <laughs> Peterborough. Or, yeah, you would say it if you were in England, you'd say Peterborough. Peterborough. <laughs> yeah. So what does Marina do there in Peterborough? Paddleboard yoga. Paddleboard yoga? Instructor. That's, oh, even an instructor. So she yeah. does paddleboard yoga and teaches others how to do paddleboard yoga. Yeah. It, I've seen that. People actually do do that here in Vancouver. And I know, it's bonkers. Is there water enough in Peterborough to be able to do that? Yes. Okay, yeah, I'm just not familiar with the area. Next we have James Wordnam. And James uh, apparently is giving us his patronage in pounds, Matthew. So we know he is from the UK. It's all pounds, shillings, and pence to well, me, darling. Yes, it is. Pounds, shillings, <laughs> and pence. And, and so where in the UK do you think James Wordnam is from? He is from Godalming. What? <laughs> it's a it's a little little town, not not too far outside of London. Okay. Um, s s 
Sam Worthington's actually from Godalming. Okay, cool. Even though even though he's an Australian actor, he was he was born in Godalming. Oh, okay. Yeah, so just because you're Australian doesn't mean you live there. You were born there. Maybe your parents moved there after. Right. He, yeah, he moved he moved when he was quite young. Okay. And uh, uh so what does our friend James do there? I think that he is a Greek and Roman mythology professor. Well, there you go. At the University of Godalming. Oh, okay. So I was going to ask, is there a university there? I just made that up. <laughs> I just made one. Oh, Godalming, just... the village of Godalming now has a university. Oh, well, there you go. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, patrons. Uh, let's move on to Donut Money Donors. One sec. I almost wrote donutmoney.com. Donutmoney.com. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that's it for this week's episode of Dark Poutine. So until next time, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye. Bye. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.